this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, Where You Once Belonged edition. It's Wednesday, December 8th, 2021. On today's show, The Power of the Dog is the latest film from Jane Campion. It stars Benedict Cumberbatch as a cowboy who, unwilling to adapt to a changing world, enters into a simmering feud with his brother's wife and her fae son. It also stars Jesse Plemons and Kirsten Dunst. And then Peter Jackson, he of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, was handed 60 hours of raw footage of the Beatles struggling to meet a set of looming deadlines to produce both an album and a live show. He has edited those into an extraordinary eight-hour documentary about the making of Let It Be, the group's penultimate and in many ways most troublesome record. And finally, of holiday season's many joys and dreads, what is more neurotically loaded than gift giving? We will discuss the rise of the gift guide, I suppose a palliative to the open-endedness and the dread of such an activity, tis the season. Joining me today is, pauses, checks notes, rechecks notes, Julia Turner, Julia Welcome back. Hi, guys. It's so nice to be here. Oh, my gosh. So I wrote down a little quote in honor of your return. Half of what I say is meaningless, yet I say it just to reach you, Julia. (laughs) Ocean child. I think of you as an ocean child, Julia. Steve, only half. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back. It's so nice to be here. I missed you guys so much. I'm so happy to be back. And of course, Dana Stevens, perennial afterthought, Dana Stevens. <laughs> <laughs> Middle child in life and on the show. <laughs> the George Harrison of the Enterprise. Uh, no, hardly. Uh, uh, Dana is, of course, the film critic for uh, Slate and has a forthcoming book entitled... Cameraman. Wait, I think I'm going to say that I'll say the subtitle this week. <laughs> Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema and the Invention of the 20th Century. And as I've been thumbnailing for the past few weeks, this is not a biography of Buster Keaton, but more of a sort of cultural study of American history during his lifespan and how it intersected with his work and his life. It's out January 25th. And Steve makes me plug it every week because he's my shadow publicist. And I really appreciate all the work he's put in. Yeah, excellent. Okay, let's make a show. Jane Campion is, of course, the great New Zealand auteur. She brought us Angel at My Table, The Piano, and The Cut, many remarkable movies. She's returned with uh, The Power of the Dog, which you can see on Netflix. It takes place out on the Western Range, American Western Range, but in the decades after the frontier has closed and civilization is starting to take its tentative route, in this tiny Montana town, what that means is a small inn and restaurant with a table full of beautifully wrought, delicate paper flowers. The establishment is owned by a widow, Rose, who marries into the local wealthy ranching family. Her new brother-in-law, though, is a quiet, macho menace and hates what he sees as his brother's concession to heirs and cosmopolitan effeminacy, heightening his apparent terror of domesticity, culture, refinement, and let's be honest, women, is his sister-in-law's son by a previous marriage, a slight, very gentle boy that the menacing cowboy gay baits and calls a sissy to his face. 
and whose beautiful paper flowers he burns up and douses in a water pitcher. What unfolds is a slow-burning frontier psychodrama. It's almost, in a way, a thriller. We'll talk about that, I, I, I guess. But a kind of weird inchoate flower all its own is very definitely beautiful. It's maybe poisonous. The movie co-stars the astonishing Cody Smith-McPhee as Peter. Dana, before we listen to the clip, maybe a little clarity will help. You want to set it up? Sure. You're going to hear an exchange between the two brothers that you mentioned, the two ranching brothers. So Phil Burbank, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, and George Burbank, played by Jesse Plemons. And at this moment, Phil, who one of whose defining characteristics is his aversion to bathing, is refusing to attend a big dinner that George is throwing with their parents and with the governor of the state of Montana and his wife to welcome his new bride into the house. I was looking for you. Well, you found me. Everyone's here. We're just about to eat. They're asking after you. Really? Yes, we're counting on your conversation. I shouldn't have said what I said to you about... You two can keep your apologies to yourself. I'm not coming. And what will I say? The old lady wants to see you, too. She's come a long way. You tell them the truth. But I stink, and I like it. All right, Dana, let's, uh, let's start with you. This film is being warmly received, to put it mildly. I think it's something of a hit on Netflix. Certainly the critics love it. What did you think? I mean, I love this movie. I'm compiling my top 10 list for the year right now, and I'm sure this will be on it. I don't rank the list, but if I did, this would definitely be near the top. Um, I mean, I've always been a Jane Campion fan. I don't think every one of her movies succeeds as well as this one does. But this is really unusual territory for her to explore. In a, in a way, not because she does like a period piece and, you know, big location shoots. And in some ways, this story resembles The Piano, her big 1993 breakthrough, even to the extent that there is a moment in which a, a widow who marries into a family is brought a piano. Uh, but it, this movie's obsession with masculinity is is a new thing for Jane Campion, and it, I feel like it's maybe her her queerest or most overtly um, queer themed movie yet in ways that we'll talk about. I'm sure the acting is all extraordinary. Uh, the the visuals are really incredible, and I really think people should see this in the theater if they feel at all okay about going to theaters. Um, I mean, just everything. Everything is in place. This is a movie that rewards a second viewing. I saw it a second time and understood and saw things I had not at all seen the first time. We will not spoil it, but there's big twists toward the end of the movie, and every single one of them meticulously has been put in place by some moment that occurs earlier in the movie, so that once you've seen it twice, you see how it all sort of buckles together into this very satisfying thriller plot. I won't give away more than that, but yes, strong, strong recommend from me. The movie that's reminded me of um, and that I think it inverts in really interesting ways yeah, is Days of Heaven, which was one of our uh, quarantine watches about sort of a war between the frontier and domesticity and, um, you know, in, in this sort of beautiful landscape that combines huge sweeping vistas with uh, depictions of outdoor work and, you know, one structure on a vast plane. Um, the thing that's surprising and really satisfying about it is that you think you're watching a sweeping meditation on masculinity that's 
uh, elliptical and dreamlike, and then it like snaps shut at the end like an Agatha Christie mystery, <laughs> like it, like a plot rears its head. And um, I feel like so often movies are the reverse. They like entice you with a, a potentially intriguing plot and then they surprise you by like dawdling into reflective cinematographic beauty. And this one, you know, hustles you with the the, the beauty and then stuns you with a plot, whomps you over the head with plot at the end in, a, in an extremely pleasing manner. So I would add my endorsement. Yeah, it has an ending. I mean, that's just, that is a rare thing in this sort of a reflective art house movie, right? The end is not ambiguous or meandering. The end is uh, is, mm-hmm. is satisfying and clean. Yes. And the movie also feels compact. You know, we're in a season where there's, well, we're about to talk about Get Back, an over eight hour long documentary about the Beatles, but it's not all bad. Some of it's great, but there has been a lot of heft in movies this year. And it's just great to see a movie that clocks in right at two hours and gets so much done in that time. Mm. All right. Well, I will have to be brutally frank and a little bit of a dissenter here. I admired but didn't especially love this movie. And there were two dominant reasons why. The first is that, to me, it's really a triangle that's got an extra leg, unnecessary leg to it, and it becomes sort of oddly misbalanced. I mean, it's really the story of these three people, the, the sort of, you know, archetypal woman on the range who's a civilizing force, the archetypal refusenik in the face of the closing frontier uh and you know powerfully machismo and uh, dreadful in his way and the past refusing to become past and then this third i think in many ways to me at least quite new figure which makes the film from the beginning absent the plot twist makes the film fresh uh the, for the performance and the character is written you know this ostensibly gay boy who's um you know very his, obviously, his sexuality at a minimum is ambiguous. He's openly uh, gay-baited. Uh, it's brutal. It's re- very hard to watch by these macho men. Uh, but into this is added Jesse Plemons, the brother figure, which I suppose is necessary on some level, but because Plemons is a big star, I for the first, you know, pretty substantial portion of the movie, it seems to be their falling out in disaffection because of the marriage and then the tormenting of the of the... Kirsten Dunn's character, the woman, into alcoholism. Um, but I just thought that that the essential story is really be p- between Cumberbatch and the boy. Um, and and that act of deflection in the middle part of the movie didn't work for me. I actually didn't like the interactions between Plemons and Cumberbatch. I found them kind of plotting and a little kind of, there's a kind of underwriting that's in fact a kind of overwriting. I felt that the movie lapsed into that. And then there's a second thing, which is that the movie to work has to be dominated throughout by the awful menace of this cowboy figure played by Cumberbatch. And I think Cumberbatch is in a scarcely a better actor going. He's not, I wouldn't, I don't want to take one step in the direction of hinting that he's bad in this movie. He's not, but he, he, he plays it. It's not quite him. It's not quite right. I mean, he sort of steals his eyes to this horrible coldness, watchful coldness. He's portrayed as cunning. Um, he has to do an American accent. None of it quite fit right for me. And then there's the character as written. There's a, there are odd moments where it's hinted that he was a superstar, uh, a Yale undergraduate major. And there's a moment, it's actually a remarkable moment in the movie where Kirsten Dunst has been brought this piano, right? Obviously a, a loaded symbol to begin with, but very in the you know, work of Jane Campion, right? The presence of the piano in an outback. And she's, is, she's struggling to 
she can play it a little bit, but her husband in his love for her has exaggerated her ability to do so. And she's struggling with a piece. And to the head of the stairs comes the Cumberbatch character with the banjo, who from ear plays this actually quite intricate piece uh, uh, back to her beautifully on the banjo that she can't play. It's a very pointed moment, and I think in a novel it might work, but there's this sense of, this unstable sense of who this menacing person is, I found just unbalanced in a way. And 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 uh, anyway, it, I, 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 yes, it is true when the moment of revelation clicks in, the movie like, you know, The Sixth Sense retrospectively rewrites itself and falls into place mosaically. And I want to go back and rewatch it for that miraculous, but the but the moments of themselves when I was in them in the middle of it, they just weren't landing for me. But I look at the consensus and I hear you too, and I'm sure it's it's mostly me. I, I could not disagree with you more about Cumberbatch's performance. Like I just, the, the, the antsiness of it, the sort of trapped aggressiveness of his bullying cowboy swagger at the beginning, um, even in the first scene that we see where we see him and Plemons driving some cattle on two horses and he's sort of constantly switching side the side, like his horse is like frisking around Plemons' horse and Plemons' is mm-hmm. just, you know, sturdily plodding forward as its taciturn rider doesn't say much. And uh, Cumberbatch's character like desperately tries to elicit a response. Like he just, the the kind of pain... And, you know, just there's something you can just tell there's something wrong and he's and you can't figure out exactly why it is that he's such a antsy asshole of a person. Um, That whole performance worked for me incredibly well. I will say uh, the 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 kind of piano torture sequence I thought was also amazing. The moment at the end of the dinner party where. Kirsten Dunst, uh, having been humiliated, like quickly shoots her tropical, her incongruous Montana tropical beverage uh, (laughs) at the end of a chapter. I was sort of like, whoa, that's a little obvious. Like, I only like that if she does not go on to become an alcoholic. And then lo and behold, she's like scuffling through bottles and alleys afterwards. Like the, 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 her, the way her descent is not played actually because I think Dunst's performance is great, but sort of telegraphed um, seemed a little clunky. Like she ceases to be a specific person or as specific a person, I think, once the film loses interest in her and sets up this battle of wills. Mm -hmm. Yes, agree. But um, I don't know. I just, you know I'm a sucker for a tight plot and this movie completely won me back around with its ending and I'm really interested to watch it again. I just want to put in one vote in favor of this movie's weirdness and inscrutability. I mean, even though it has this satisfying clicky ending we're talking about, a lot of the character stuff doesn't quite click and the characters remain mysterious and inscrutable. And some of them who you didn't think were mysterious and inscrutable become so by the end of the movie. And in that sense, I think it's it's very unusual. I mean, it, it does have this satisfying thriller plot and in some ways familiar archetypes from Westerns and, and from, as you say, Terrence Malick, Julia, and so forth. But there's something Jane Campion-esque about it where she she really doubles down on the mystery and refuses to let you know some of these things completely. Why, 
Benedict Cumberbatch's character is the way he is, you know, why he suddenly takes a shine to the boy, what it all means. And I love that those things remain mysterious, mm. even after watching it a second time. Yeah. Okay. Well, the movie is The Power of the Dog. It's uh, it's a click away on Netflix. I think Dana's right. It deserves a large screen if you can uh, brave it. Uh, but we, you know, I, listen, I'm in the, I know I'm not only in the minority, I'm pretty sure I'm in the wrong, but um, write us, tell us, talk to us uh, if you've seen it, what you thought. All right, moving on. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. Well, before we go any further, this is typically where we discuss business in our podcast. Dana, give me the business. Stephen, our big item of business is just to remind everyone once again about our upcoming listener call-in episode. It's going to come out on Wednesday, December 29th. That is something that we do at the end of every year uh, as a kind of celebration of the end of the year to hear from all of you and also so that we can get a week off for the holidays. Uh, we're waiting right now to get more questions from listeners, but we've gotten some really good ones already. If you want to leave us a voicemail about what you would like us to talk about, it can be about culture, about our show, about any question more broadly that you might like to ask, you can call 402 Nine eight nine three three seven eight. Again, that's four zero two nine eight nine three three seven eight. Or as always, you can email us a question at culturefest at slate.com. Uh, we're looking forward to getting more questions and winnowing those down and answering them on our end of your show. And our second item of business, as always, is to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment. Since this is a special week with Julia Turner finally back in her broadcasting chair where she belongs, we thought we would check in with her about her leave, and specifically about her relationship to culture during her leave. As when you've got a little baby in the house, obviously your relationship to culture is going to change in some way. You can't keep up with stuff in the way that you do when you're doing a weekly podcast about culture, but that might have allowed her to go down some interesting back roads. So that's what we will hear about from Julia. What books, music, TV, anything else did she gravitate towards during her time away? So in our Slate Plus segment, Julia will share her thoughts about that. If you're a Slate Plus member, you will hear that at the end of the show. And if you're not, as always, you can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. Signing up costs only a dollar for your first month. And for that dollar, you will get ad-free podcasts, lots of bonus content like the segment I just described, and many other shows have such segments too. And of course, unlimited access to slate.com. All the journalism is yours without ever hitting a paywall if you belong to Slate Plus. Once again, these memberships really matter a lot to us. If you want to help support us, you can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, back to the show. Okay, let's begin by getting a timeline correct. I think one of the reasons this documentary got made is to be a corrective to a hazy impressionistic timeline surrounding the Beatles and the making of the Let It Be album. So the new documentary is Get Back from Peter Jackson. We'll get into that. But first, the timeline issues. The Beatles got together in 1969 to fulfill a set of self-issue challenges to make a record in a couple of weeks, more or less from scratch, and to record the record live, i.e. no studio editing or overdubs, for which they'd become quite famous. And they wanted to perform it live, debut it by performing it live for a live audience and to make a TV show from the whole process. They more or less fulfilled their ambitions while blowing a few deadlines and vastly downsizing their live show along the way. Nonetheless, they produced the album Let It Be, also the iconic rooftop live set at Apple Studios, and a feature film instead of a TV show. However, here's where it gets complicated. Because the album was released 
after Abbey Road was released, even though it was recorded before Abbey Road was recorded, and because the film is spiced with scenes of uh, acrimony, especially between George and Paul at one very famous moment, the impression has always been that Let It Be was a valedictory statement. I mean, people to this day think of Let It Be as their last album. It was the last one released, not the last one made. And the idea was that during the making of it, what the film really captured was the band in the process of breaking up. Well, now Peter Jackson has taken 60 hours of raw footage, synced it up properly with sound, remastered it, refurbished it, done all kinds of things to it that I don't understand, but it looks beautiful. And he's edited it down to a far more representative eight hours. Uh, This documentary is now on Disney+. What unfolds is an astonishing fly-on-the-wall experience of watching Lennon and McCartney still very much at the height of their powers work a great rock and roll record into existence from really almost literally nothing. They do so via misdirection, goofing off, jamming, backbiting, mutual massaging of egos, and occasionally some very, very serious ass-in-the-chair bouts of uh, hyper-concentration. Let's listen to a clip. It seems that it's it's all happening too a little bit yeah. too quickly with them both coming in at the same time. Yeah. When do the drums first come in? Guitar and all that. Well, well, Glenn say first time they come in, he seems to be arranging this. Come on. <laughs> come on. Bass there with the only if you ask nice. Oh, oh. You want me on the verse? Come in, bass. On the verse when he comes. Japanese. Well, I was thinking of it. Yeah, yeah. Lynn and I had thought. <laughs> let it be. Let it One, be. two, three. And I find myself in times of trouble. Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom. Let it be. Julia, let me start with you. That play, uh, that clip captures it somewhat well, right? We're witnessing whatever else one thinks about the Beatles or going on for eight hours about them, this remarkable transition from formlessness to a work, to an actual meaningful song. There's an infamous clip now from the movie, it's gone quite viral, of Paul McCartney live birthing the song Get Back by just kind of banging some chords on his bass and just trying with nonsense words to hit on a melody. of a sudden it is you know and i would think this is quite moving even to someone uh who might not connect with the beatles as deeply as i do what'd you make of it this thing is incredible i mean i have to tell you i heard eight hour documentary about the beatles repurposing footage that was already in a different movie about the beatles and was like oh my god how long are they gonna milk it like i could not have been less interested in this project um but then I'm so glad I watched it uh, for several reasons. First of all, it's just an incredibly intimate look at the creative process. Forget whether it's the Beatles, like just the 
kind of access and then the distance from the heated, uh, you know, tensions of the band and their eventual breakup and the permission that the surviving members in various estates have given to let this pretty much hang out. Um, it just it's just a really revealing look at the creative process, no matter what the band is. But then the fact that all the songs they're noodling on are songs that you know in an ambient way, whether or not you're a Beatles diehard, uh, and the process of hearing them carve from like the raw block of marble the specifics of songs that are indelible is totally fascinating. Um, and then also they're all just such interesting characters, you know, who who people the world over came to know and who have their reputations and, and um, I don't know, but it's just fun to see their interplay. Also, then there's so there's there you're never bored, like it's eight hours, but there's, there's never a boring moment. And the the editing here is mm -hmm. just incredible. Yeah. Like the, the wryness and the understatedness, you know, obviously, one of the misogynistic knocks on the end of the Beatles was oh Yoko broke up the Beatles but it is it is very funny to just see her like it's the four of them jamming plus Yoko sitting right there in the little <laughs> making the quartet a quintet rocking out not saying much not interrupting but you know just there's a wryness to how it's all put together that is got humor but also generosity anyway I was blown away Dana what'd you think it's such a rich document. I mean, I pretty much knew I would be interested in this because while not as much of a Beatles head as Steve, you know, I definitely really love their music and at a certain point really especially loved the music from this period. Steve, you mentioned on a recent segment that that the the White Album was your favorite Beatles album or the one you thought was the most accomplished, which is an unusual opinion, right? It's usually thought of as sort of a grab bag of random tracks from a moment when they were writing in very different styles. And I have to say that a Beatles album that I absolutely love that I also know is not usually classed among their greatest is Abbey Road. And so you get to hear a lot of those songs, mm -hmm. the very, very beginning of the composition of those songs here. Um, and those moments that you talk about, like these embryonic moments where they're noodling around with a riff or something and you realize, oh my God, that's going to become such and such. And that's really exciting to see it coming together. Um, and it's a great pleasure, too, to just see them having so much fun. I mean, if you have seen Let It Be and you know the lore of this time, you know, the idea was supposed to be that they were all nasty and fighting and they couldn't write together anymore. And they're not always equally engaged with the recording process because of various debates about how it should go and whether there should be a live show, etc. But they all still care about music and they all still care about making good music with each other. And that is really, really great to watch. Yeah, Dana, I completely agree. I mean, listen, what can I possibly say? I would watch all 60 hours of the raw footage, and I'm not even kidding. I mean, even to me, a Beatles fan, I learned something uh, that to me blew me away and made me just love them even more. This album is sort of infamous. It was the only one that ever got negative reviews on its release. It was savaged by many people. The most influential critic savaged it. Um, it was famously handed over to for all the intent to go in and record effectively a live album or live to tape album at, at a bare minimum it was then handed over to phil Spector for post-production he added the horrible syrupy strings to long and winding road which is a song that needs to go in the other direction in any kind of post-production to salvage it um but what's wonderful is I just didn't know the extent to which they wanted it to be a live record without studio effects played by a band actually playing together, which is why they brought in Billy Preston, because McCartney's, as we all know, is actually quite a competent 
piano player. They were able to overdub piano when they needed it um, with any one of, uh, with either of Lennon or McCartney playing the piano, but they brought in Preston to play because they wanted live keyboards. And I did not know that Dig a Pony, which on many days is my all-time favorite Beatles song. It's it's hard rock. It's an it's a monster riff. It's beautiful, beautifully done harmonies, and the lead vocal is so delicate and so aching um, and vulnerable from Lennon. It's one of his best vocals all time. I didn't realize the album cut is taken from the rooftop live show. That's how fucking tight they were as a band by the end of this process. So the triumph to me here is a triple one of, we, you know, the, the, the witnessing of a, of, of a now iconic and I think now justly revered album, Let It Be Coming Into Existence Before Our Very Eyes. Um, and then, of course, Julia, at the end of the day, you have this dialectic, right? You've got the over-pleasing, outer-directed, very melodic, almost effortless in a Mozartian way, McCartney counterpoised by the acidic, withdrawn, scornful, satiric, often quite surreal, surrealist in his aesthetic orientation, Lennon. And together, they built a universe. Yeah, I mean, I just love it as a character study, you know? And I think my sense of who each of the Beatles uh, is has grown more complicated over time. I, I actually went and saw Paul McCartney play at Dodger Stadium a couple of years ago, um, which I would recommend, you know, like if he's if he's uh, still touring and, and COVID allows, like is pretty great. He put on a pretty great show. He brought out Ringo Starr to drum on Helter Skelter at the 11th hour of the concert, which was which was kind of amazing to see all the uh, the surviving Beatles at once. Um, but what struck me on stage, and I, I had seen Mick Jagger, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 years ago. Like I'd seen aging rockers strut. Um, but Paul McCartney is just such a dork. Like he's mm-hmm. such an earnest yeah. dork. Um, it, particularly in this, in his sort of genial grand old man phase that he's currently in. Um and it was interesting to see him struggling with leadership, basically, within the group. And there's a really interesting moment, you know, which which McCartney and the estates must have signed off on, uh, where when George leaves the group and they're trying to figure out what to do, John and Paul go have lunch and the producers put a hidden microphone in a in a flower pot in the cafeteria and you hear this really honest debate about, um, or you sort of barely hear, but can hear this debate about what to do and about the dynamic that they have with George Harrison. And, you know, you, you get a sense of them wrestling with how they've treated him and their creative impact. And, you know, you, you see, you see a lot of George performing songs and you can almost see Paul like, kind of bored or having decided that it's not going to work as a Beatles song and just like waiting for him to get through whatever he's playing. Like you can just see, you can see so much on their faces. Um, But all of it happens within this spirit of 
kind of earnest joy at co-creation. You know, they've made amazing things. They have absolute confidence in that. They think they want to make some more. They're, they're, it's interesting to hear them apply their standards to, to their early riffs. Like, what is it that's not sounding right to them about a song until they get it to sounding right? Um, and, and sort of what the bar is for making a new song as a Beatle in 1969. Like, you've already made everything you've made. What the hell are you going to make yeah. next? Like, yeah. you know, it's just so exciting and intimate to see any kind of craftsman group of craftsmen and 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 the mix between their artistic imperative and then their personal interplay it's just delightful and i should also say even if you like don't like music at all and you're only interested in the visual for all that it's just like a bunch of dudes in rooms for the most part the clothes and the kind of period vibe yeah. <laughs> are sensational. <laughs> like yeah. I got to hear Dana speak to the aesthetics of this in terms of their uh, um, their attire, particularly. <laughs> yeah, I know, Julia. You saw me tweeting last night about craving all of George Harrison's turtlenecks. I want them all. <laughs> I mean, I'm so impressed, honestly, that they turned out looking like that when most of the time all they were doing was sitting in a big soundstage all day. I mean, I guess they knew they were being filmed, but they all seemed to be scoffing at the idea of this documentary. I think they just they just dressed that way. They were just such style mavens in the best kind of scruffy 70s way with, you know, giant ratty fur coats and skinny jeans and smoking cigarettes. I mean, it just makes the late 60s and early 70s look like the most cool, stylish adult era it could possibly be. And speaking of adult, I mean, another thing that just strikes you over and over watching this is how incredibly young they were, right? Yes. I mean, they had all just lived through the experience of being the Beatles, right? I mean, just this unbelievably draining and bizarre experience of being the world's biggest pop stars for years. And they were, I think they say at one point, Lennon and McCartney are 28. 28. I don't know if they're the exact same age, but yeah, so that makes George Harrison even younger. I mean, they're all under 30 and they're just about to start essentially their lives without each other. And so Peter Jackson also edits the very first part, the first hour or so in such a way that you get a sense of their history without him ever having to plod through, mm -hmm. right? There's no talking Never. heads, of course. Nothing. And there's a couple little legends that appear to explain what date things happen, but it's really just with images, not even as much with sound, right? You'll hear some of the noodly sounds like we heard in that audio clip of them in the soundstage. And then you see, you know, a very quick montage of their Hamburg years mm -hmm. in black and white, right? Or a little snippet of Paul McCartney at age 14, you know, the yeah. age when he met John Lennon and started writing songs with him. And you realize, oh, you know, so they they really just grew up together and now they're about to say goodbye to each other and go have families and start solo careers and just begin having lives as adult musicians, right? So yeah. to look at this as some moment, as I had always thought of it with the Let It Be documentary framing of, you know, the late Beatles and the tragic breakup or something, it's really to, to misapprehend it in some ways. And it's also to make John Lennon's murder even more freshly yes. tragic than Brutal. it always yes. is, right? And there's a moment in that in that secretly taped conversation Julia, you were talking about, the microphone in the flower pot between John and Paul, where Paul says something like, you know, it does seem like we're drifting apart. They kind of acknowledge that. And he says, but you know what? I bet when we're old, we will all come together and play again. <laughs> and it's so heartbreaking because oh you really God, do get the sense watching this that they would have. Yes. Yeah. Dana, it's, a, it's also what we've witnessed is also a movie. We talk about it as a movie. Yeah. I mean, another... 
level on which this really impressed me was as a feat of filmmaking. I mean, you could say that in some ways by, you know, making it so damn long, um, Peter Jackson is is making it easy on himself. But that doesn't seem like at all the case to me with how expertly it's all been framed and put together. And it made me just realize that he's not done as a filmmaker. I mean, you also see that exciting turn in his career, Peter Jackson's career, in a way in They Shall Not Grow Old, which is that documentary about World War One that I've endorsed before in the show, which like this documentary, obviously using older footage, takes this old footage, digitally restores it in all kinds of ways that I don't totally love in every case, um, cleans it up so that it looks incredibly fresh and modern and, you know, plunges us right into the room. So in the World War One documentary that worked by, you know, colorizing footage that had been in black and white, changing the frame rate so that it looked not herky-jerky the way old movies sometimes do, but very smooth, and even laying some sort of ambient sound onto these silent clips from the war. And, you know, the, the psychological and emotional effect of that was huge, but some people, I think, ethically questioned what it means to kind of sweeten old footage in that way and whether, you know, it's a, it's a strange thing to do with history. I think those questions come up less in the case of this documentary because, well, it's not about war, right? So the stakes are not as high. It's more recent. It's stuff that we're more familiar with. And the cleanup is not as elaborate. But there were times when how good and clean this looked and how smoothly it was put together made me feel a little bit like there was some cheating going on. I, I missed, in a way, the grain that the the film must originally have had. And there are certainly moments where there's, this isn't a huge deal, but there's sort of pretend sync up happening. It's very cleverly done, but there's, I think there's moments where the audio that we're hearing is not really what's happening in the room at the time, mm-hmm. but he's cutting in such a way that literally he'll, he'll cut to Ringo when Ringo has a symbol in front of his mouth or something mm-hmm. so that you can't see that he's not saying those exact words at that exact moment. It's so expertly done that you almost don't notice it. And I sort of admire Peter Jackson for doing that so well, but um yeah, the, the, I think by by juxtaposing it with the World War One doc, I'm sounding as if I have ethical problems with this documentary, and I don't. But at times, the aesthetic beauty of it was such that it was almost like fan fiction. It sort of seemed like, wow, if if you dreamed something up out of a Beatles super fan's imagination, yes, you know, this is this that. is what it would over be like. And over, I felt that totally. Way. It's like you get to hang out with them. You I mean, you you you're them, like, yeah. oh, what if I was there? I mean, but I, you know, how itchy I am about documentary ethics, Dana, and I agree. I think part of what helps with that is that they were all there putting on a show. Like the whole reason they all showed up there that January and agreed to be recorded as they were trying to make an album was that they wanted one day for their fans to like be sitting in on them making an album and then performing it. And so like the 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 notion I mean fundamentally they all knew I mean, they probably had just, were just so used to being spectated mm-hmm. at that point that they mostly seem relatively unselfconscious, although it's interesting. I feel that Paul seems the most aware Very. throughout that, that they're all being recorded, um, and then the rest of them seem much less self-conscious. Um, but I don't know. I think that's part of what helped for me, because typically that kind of stuff just gives me the ulti- the major heebie- heebie-jeebies and turns me off of a project. But it f- has the feeling of Peter Jackson very masterfully helping them finish right. what they actually set out to do. Okay, very quickly by way of closure. I, making rock and roll is very, very hard. The instruments are are you know amplified to within an inch of their life every mistake is amplified it's actually not a crude art form for being loud the opposite especially if you're playing with any kind of musical delicacy uh at all 
Uh, to this, the Beatles added three-part harmonies that could often be like almost like chipmunk tight. And the moments in this documentary where they are playing at maximum volume, uh, playing actually very, you know, very beautifully arpeggiated, whatever the verb form would be, uh, guitar chords and singing in perfect, perfect harmony. I, I Those to me are what floored me the most. Paul McCartney, in one sense, had an eye on posterity all the time, I think, but once it became clear how big they were. And here he was trying to say, look at how, just how fucking good we were as a rock band, just playing these, forget Sgt. Pepper's, forget the studio, forget the orchestral effects and sound effects. Look at how fucking amazing we were as a rock and roll band. I don't think there's ever been one that could do what they did in that basic regard. Watch this documentary. It's amazing. Get back. It's on Disney+. Plus. All right, moving on. Back in the 90s, Pepsi and Coca-Cola were in a heated race to try and win loyal customers by any means necessary. But when Pepsi launched an ambitious promotion that encouraged people to buy Pepsi and redeem points for prizes, they overlooked their own fine print in a major way. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Like, who at Pepsi thought it would be a good idea to advertise that people could earn enough points to redeem a military jet as a prize? When they launched their Pepsi point system, they never imagined somebody might try to actually snag it, but a 23-year-old did, and suddenly, Pepsi owed him a jet. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. This podcast is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Most of you listening to this show right now are probably multitasking in some way or another. You might be driving, cleaning, exercising, maybe grocery shopping. But as long as you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing right now, and that's getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy, and you can save money by doing it right now from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner, and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. All right. Well, on to our third topic. Uh, Julia, I'm going to lob you a lovely, tasty, fresh out of the oven hot potato. We're talking about gift giving around Christmas time, which highly personal topic. But maybe the original peg isn't entirely personal to each of us and our habits, proclivities, and neuroses around this uh, ritual. And uh, about something called gift guides, I sort of probably like many of our listeners, uh, maybe not, need this to be explained to me a little bit. Will you take it away? You need gift guides to be explained to you? I mean, I know your whole thing is that you live under a rock, but like, come on, Steve. Like, you can't go on the internet without being like, 101 gifts for your babysitter. And like... It's he, needs like a guide. How, he needs a gift guide, gift guide. It, it's lovely to have you back, Julia. <laughs> but like... 
Seriously, you are familiar with the concept of a gift guide, no? I mean, my calluses had started to tenderize and fall away after the absence, but it's good. I need them back, so fly away. Go ahead. Uh, all right, fine. Dana, are you familiar with a gift guide? <laughs> what is this guide that you speak of? <laughs> fuck off. <laughs> no, but I think, though, I do think as an editor, Julia, you could speak to the mushrooming of gift guides yes, in recent yes, mushrooming, years. Mushrooming, that's what I said, <laughs> mushrooming. I mean, I just, I know so many people who right now are, you know, shutting themselves away. I tried to get a friend to see West Side Story with me last week, and she couldn't because she had to write her gift guide. You know, I mean, if you write on anything related to fashion or style or shopping, it's it's the equivalent of the top 10 list at the end of the year that people are, are slaving over. So I want to know what they're doing. Yeah, well, so you may have noticed, if you are not Steve, that in recent years, uh, there have just been a mushrooming, a proliferation of the annual holiday gift guide. And the holiday gift guide has, like, been with us forever. You know, some sections shows up in a magazine or in a newspaper around about mid-November, early December. You know, 25 delightful stocking stuffers for your mother-in-law you know, et cetera. Like the notion of like, here are some things you could buy for the people you love at this season where part of how we celebrate the birth of Christ and mass capitalism is buying objects, wrapping them up and giving them to other people. Um, you know, th this is a thing that's been around for a long time. However, we now live at a moment of like peak gift guide for a number of reasons. One of which is driven by the economics of, of publishing right now. Um, because if you work for a publication that has any kind of affiliate links revenue, meaning those sites where you go and you see that someone has recommended a lamp, and then if you buy that lamp through a link from that site, the publisher of the recommendation makes a little bit of money, which is almost everybody. You know, this is what the wire cutter does for the New York Times. This is what the strategist does for New York Magazine. Um, you know, Slate does affiliate links. There's affiliate links all over the place. Uh, essentially, the gift guide, which was always a useful thing to provide to your audience, now has become a useful thing to provide to your audience and a great way to make money. Um, and so they are everywhere. And they come in many flavors and stripes. And various publications have adapted with varying degrees of success to doing them digitally. Um, and I... I kind of love a gift guide. I mean, I enjoy shopping media and it's fun to see well-selected things presented with beautiful photographs and witty captions. And I also love gift giving and, and present wrapping. And, you know, I, I enjoy the thoughtful gift, both as a giver and a recipient. But um, so I enjoy them, but even I enjoying them, I'm somewhat drowning in, in gift guide abundance. So I was curious to hear what you guys make of them, whether you consume them, if you find them useful, what you find delightful or cloying about them. Uh, and I guess I'll direct that question to Dana, since she knows what they are. <laughs> I mean, use them in the sense that I'm likely to buy something off a gift guide? Very likely no. For one thing, they tend to be high-end, right? I also don't 100% trust, depending on the publication, that they're not, I mean, I'm not going to say paid for, but, you know, that they're not in some way influenced by strong publicity teams for that particular product or service. Um I think that there are spaces for fantasy, and in that sense, a gift guide can be interesting. So if there's a publication that I know has good taste that I might be fascinated by, then yeah, I will think about the cashmere leggings that I might like to buy my mom or something like that. But I guess to me, they are maybe more related to 
to fantasizing than to actual usage. And I mean, this becomes a, a slightly spins off into a different question, but I also think maybe I feel differently about gift giving than you, especially just right now. I mean, not only in our historical moment with COVID and I don't know, every inequality and everything else that hap- is happening, but even just in my own life moment, you know, I don't have a little kid anymore. Um, I think I have a kid who would more appreciate getting experiences than than objects. And so I'll probably get her Broadway tickets, you know, for, for the holidays this year. Um but yeah, I think I think I, I maybe I'm a little bit less in the space of I can't wait to get my gifts and wrap them than you are. It's sort of more like, oh, God, I see myself yet again on Christmas Eve at one in the morning listening to Tim Curry read a Christmas carol on audiobooks while I, you know, badly wrap my badly chosen last minute gifts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, that's marvelous. Well, Steve, regardless of whether you are a gift guide user, are you a, are you a gift Scrooge or a or a gift tiny Tim. I'm not sure where that metaphor goes. Are you pro-gift or anti-gift? I love I love giving gifts. I, I love giving gifts in the, both in the spirit of the season, but also uh, in the spirit of, of under-consumption, uh, choosing finically um, and um, emphasizing a certain thoughtfulness and precision rather than uh, abundance and, and um, you know, uh, ostentatious displays of generosity. Anyway, but um, I... I tweet it like all deadlines. I go at the last minute in a something of a panic and something kind of unexpected comes to fruition. And, and I, I, it's just that the art of gift giving has to do with thinking about the person, not the gift, you know? And there's just this wonderful sort of circuitry gets completed in your head when you see a certain object and think of a certain person and, and why you're giving it and why them. Um, and I love that. I love that part of it. Uh, that, that to me is wonderful. It seems to me perhaps, Julia, that this is the opposite of going to a gift guide, a guide, as you call it, the cadeau de uh, uh, whatever. Anyway, but the, I, you know, this thing that you tell me of, but um, uh, I don't know. Am I just being a, you know, a persnickety uh, snob? I don't know that you're specifically being that in this instance, um, but I, I okay. Well, let me speak up for the gift guide since since both of you, neither of you, is a particular fan. I, I think one thing that is confusing about this. Well, I think there's a couple changes, right? So going to the boutique and finding a few delightful morsels for a few people at a intimate holiday celebration uh, is really fun, but. I have done all my gift purchasing online for, I don't know, probably eight or 10 years, probably since I had kids, I guess, because it's hard to find the weekend time to like go have a leisurely, you know, boutique look about. Um, and obviously COVID further contributes to the idea that randomly wandering in and out of stores is something that one might want to avoid. Um, and, you know, also just in general, as my recreational shopping for myself and others for gifts and for, you know, whatever, just whatever you need for your own house has grown more virtual. There's this weird blend of shopping and reading. Like there's not that much difference between reading the sort of product pages at the front of a classic women's magazine and just looking at a well-curated shopping website right now. That line is super blurry. And gift guide season is a useful moment where the editorial hand reasserts itself in various sites in their quest to provide a delightful editorial mix and a range of price points 
point you to new places where you could go look at stuff. So it's kind of like editors are helping you find a bunch of new virtual boutiques. And I don't know, it's, it's, I don't want to over glamorize shopping or consumption, but it's fun to see, to find different things. Um, However, you do, I, I enjoy them more as browsing experiences than shopping experiences, because it does take away some of the fun of finding the perfect thing for the gift recipient you're seeking to give a gift to. If you're just like, well, you know, the strategist said dads love this meat thermometer, like, guess I'll get him the meat thermometer. And, you know, your brother-in-law wants these whiskey cubes. You know, (laughs) has has anyone ever talked about whiskey cubes as much as in a gift guide? Like, you can never hear the end of whiskey cubes. Um, (laughs) I I do love a good whiskey cube, FYI. I shit, I should have got Steve whiskey cubes. Um, <laughs> well, anyway. Uh, yeah, the idea that you would, they would be able to match, I mean, that kind of brings up the question, you know, that they're incredibly gendered and the idea that they know, you know, what that particular person or the person that fills that slot in your life would want. I mean, it's far more likely that I would find something I would want in a gift guide that I would choose to look at in a magazine of my choosing than I would say, they understood the psychology of my family member perfectly and that's what I'll get them. You know, so maybe it feels kind of selfish to me to browse gift guides because I'm just looking at luxury items that I can fantasize about for myself. But I wanted to specify earlier too that I I do enjoy gift giving. It's more the holiday crunch of having to give gifts to everyone at once in this kind of very timed and festive way. Like I would maybe prefer to give a birthday gift, you know, or a different Mm. kind of circumstance where you're not going down a list saying, oh my God, I don't have anything for so-and-so. And it really is the case now, I think that with most of the adults in my life, we just don't give each other gifts. You know, not not with my life partner, that's not true, but you know, I don't mail off gifts to my siblings, for example, maybe to their kid if I find the perfect thing for their kid. But it would be, oh my God, it just the, especially in COVID, the, the, the obligatory mailing of things all over the country, kudos to anyone who's doing that, but sounds sounds completely exhausting. Julia, before we wrap, could you, for people like Steve, who are still exploring their way through the dark cave of what a gift guide might be, have any particular ones you recommend or publications or types of publications you think do them especially well? I mean, you can't, you can't really miss them. They'll, they'll whack you in the face no matter what publication you go to. Um, but they, I have a soft spot in my heart for the gift guides that really just feel like a specific person's romp through the internet. Um, so, you know, the cultural commentator, Anne Helen Peterson, who for a long time was at BuzzFeed and now has a Substack on her Instagram, did her own gift guide of like 10 things she likes. And for whatever reason, I like clicked through a bunch of links and learned about a new jewelry site. And, you know, it's, it, it feels very intimate and specific when it's just one person. Uh, similarly, the food writer, Helen Rosner, who's been a guest on our show, does a great kind of written through gift guide for the New Yorker, which, you know, does does gift guides with its usual uh, understatement and aplomb, but hers uh, is is a delightful and more personal um, approach to food stuff and stuff for food people. All right. Well, write us. I mean, I want to hear if like, you know, gift guides have prol- proliferated so much, apparently, that every human being alive knows about them. I'd love to know if our listenership avails uh, themselves of them. Um, All right. Send us some mail. Let's move on. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Stephen, I was trying to think about this past week and what was the most um, overwhelming and pleasurable cultural experience I had. I think, honestly, it was watching the Beatles documentary, but we've already talked about that, so I can't endorse it. So I'm going to go back to the last movie that I reviewed and wrote about for Slate, which is only showing in theaters right now. So, you know, I, I hesitate to endorse something that's only showing in theaters, but if you feel good going to theaters, this is a fantastic theatrical experience. If you don't, it will be, I'm sure it will be on streaming at some point in the, in the coming weeks. I'm not exactly sure how long they'll hold out because it's a big event, but it's West Side Story, the Steven Spielberg, Tony Kushner remake of the classic musical, which I'm sure we'll discuss on this show at some point, which I saw at the premiere, which was lots of fun and sparkly, not the way I usually get to see movies, but Spielberg was there. And Steven Spielberg has reinvented it and made it his own. This movie is much better than the 1961 version. It's much better cast. It's much better directed. It moves incredibly. It achieves liftoff. It achieves that thing that is so hard for filmed musicals to do, which is make the singing and dancing appear to organically arise out of the story. The choreography is unbelievable. Like I would I would barely change a thing about this movie. And it all is also one of the best, I would say one of the best Spielberg movies in a decade. So that is me raving about West Side Story. But it really is, I think, a kind of a theatrical experience. So maybe if you live in a place where COVID rates allow and you feel good about taking your family to a theater, take your family to a theater to see West Side Story as as a holiday occasion. It's just, it's kind of an overwhelming cinematic experience. I cannot wait. I can't wait to discuss it. Uh, I hope we do. Um, Julia, what do you have? We'll talk about this a little bit more in our plus segment today on, I, I believe our subject is how one consumes culture when one no longer has to consume culture for a living. But among the cultural things I consumed while I was out on maternity leave was that I finally read Isabel Wilkerson's book, The Warmth of Other Suns. And it is stunning. Like, Mm. you know, obviously much lauded Pulitzer Prize winning book, um, one of the first great and, and certainly one of the best written popular histories of the Great Migration. Um, it's an incredibly well-crafted narrative. So she did just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of interviews uh, for more than 10 years with black Americans who had been migrants, who had migrated from various places in the South to various places in the North and West. Um, And, you know, from those hundreds of interviews, chose three people as her protagonists, um, both for the clarity and vivacity of their storytelling and I think for representing different arcs and patterns in the Great Migration. Um, so it, it follows three migrants um, from different southern states, you know, one of whom goes to the Northeast, one of whom go, who goes to the Upper Midwest, and one of whom goes to Los Angeles. Um, and it's just so good. So if, like me, this book has been on your list for years and years, 
take this as your spur to finally pick it up and read it. It's it's heartbreaking, infuriating, uh, and just inspiring in how well-researched and well-told and well-conceived and well-constructed it is. It's, it's a masterpiece, justifiably considered a masterpiece, and you should go check it out if you have not. Wow, that has been on my radar to read for a while, but I just wrote down the title with a big circle around it, so thank you. Yeah, I just ordered it on Amazon. I'm going to give it oh, wow. a copy, Simultaneous. To my, <laughs> copy to my older daughter for Christmas, so there we go. Uh, Julia, I want to begin with a question. Rachel Cusk, yay or nay? Not really. What I've the, read I've what? read a few of them. Oh. Um <laughs> and I'm not into it. <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> oh my god. All right. Well, I was going to endorse something and now I'm not so sure, but I'm in honor of your return, but I'm going to follow through uh you know, even as I like Do wipe it. the acid from my face. Uh I'm going to say um that among the pieces of culture that I've consumed in the last, let's say, two weeks, uh, the one that maybe meant the most to me after the Beatles documentary was a song. And it's not just a song, it's an epic. It's not just an epic, it's a reconsideration and a re-release. All Too Well by American singer-songwriter Taylor Swift <laughs> is a masterpiece. And Whoa. I... I'm not sure what I love most about it. Maybe it's the way it combines country rock, soft rock, folk, and arena rock styles. Uh, but I'll tell you what I what I do believe. I do think it's an incredible pop song. And I actually think it, it wallops in a way that to me none of her other music does for one simple reason. I actually think it, and I'm sure other songs do. I'm just saying for me, this is the one song of hers that I believe connects up to an inner being, the little little humanoid at the center of Taylor Swift that's an actual non-celebrified human being. I believe that she actually had those experiences, had those emotions, and had to put them on paper and into a song. And uh, I think it's evocative for that reason. And we listen to it repeatedly on a long car ride. My kids love it. And they are not they are not huge stands here at all for Taylor. And um I was one over immediately. It's a remarkable song. So there you go. In exchange for the little acid bath that you just treated my face to, Julia, here's a little <laughs> a little gift. And I didn't buy it off a guide either. <laughs> but can I just say, Steve, that there's an enormous helping of passive aggression and you're saying that that is the only song Taylor Swift's ever written that expresses her experience. <laughs> when also like exactly what she's famous for is like doing this with all of her relationships, like that's all of her songs and if you ask me it's like fairly calculated to, to be like here's the real story i'm gonna spend more, more gold out of this i knew this would backfire i mean i knew it, i knew it would and it has that's fine julia it's amazing to have you back it really is it's, it's the way so it nice be. to be with you guys uh dana as always a complete uh total pleasure Total joy. I feel like we're, we're back in the saddle here. We're, we're ready to roll for the rest of the year with Julia. Yeah, agree. And to our listeners, that warm, gooey feeling you have right now I, uh, that I have, I hope you have too. Now translate that into action and buy Dana's book right now. You will find <laughs> links to some of the things we talked about at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. And please email us. We have three wonderfully open questions out to you from our three segments. Email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our uh, intro music is by Nicholas Bertel. 
Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. This was a really fun one. We will talk to you next week. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.